Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder, you know, a founder that has uh, built companies in the past. We're going to be talking about financing, scaling, uh, taking your company public, uh, learning as well about focus, prioritizing, hiring. I mean, you name it. I think that the journey of our founder today is quite inspiring. And uh, without further ado, let's welcome our guest, Jeff Chapin. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here and uh, ready to dig in. So originally born in Anchorage, Alaska. I mean, your dad was in the U.S. Air Force and your mother was a teacher. But I'm sure that jumping from one place to another, I'm sure that taught you a lot. So tell us about your life growing up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, my dad flew uh, F-4s in the Air Force. Um, so it was like a 70s era fighter plane. Um, and we we moved every three to four years. Some like the shortest assignment we had was, I think, one year living in Rhode Island. Um, let's see, I, I ended up becoming super close to my family because um, you kind of change friends every couple of years. Um, you get used to jumping into totally new environments, uh, which has kind of suited me well and actually like in a funny way paved some future career decisions I made uh, where your new environment, new house, new friends, new school. Um, it's given me a sense of like global issues in a way. I have a lot of friends who maybe grew up in one small town in America. Um, and my family, one, we just inherently traveled because of the military and two, my parents were like on top of that. We didn't buy much material stuff. I we had like a, I think a 19 inch CRT television until I was in high school. Um, and we spent our money on travel. So going to Eastern Europe and Southern Europe and different, you know, Korea 25 years ago. Um, and it just gave me a sense of like where we fit in as America, Americans, honestly, like how fortunate we have it. Um, and um, it led me to like some, some career paths to try to go work internationally and try to tackle um, more kind of basic fundamental human needs. I think kind of the other last thing I would say is, um, obviously, that people have different opinions on the role and value of a military. But one thing I could say is, you there was always a sense of mission um, and a sense of meaning and a sense of community when you're on a military base. Um, and I think the need for that is really important for me because I always felt part of something bigger, part of bigger than my family, bigger than myself. And uh, I think when you enter the rest of the world that can really get lost. And so I think it's, it's really important to be grounded, to have, to be part of something larger. And what about with all the traveling and going from one place to another, how was, well, I mean, what did you learn about dealing with uncertainty? Because I mean, as a, as a kid growing from one place to another, making new friends and new everything, I mean, I'm sure that that taught you a thing or two about starting from scratch, you know, uncertainty and so forth, no? Yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, I put in like the camp of resilience that like you learn that you're going to, you can't, by practice, you learn that you can adapt to anything. And obviously you, you, the practice is being thrown into a new situation repeatedly over and over. And um, I have young kids now, so and it's like one of the, like, I think it's one of my better character traits is, is resilience. And I, it's something I actively think about in terms of like, how do you build that in, in children? 
Um, and so I think that adaptability builds resilience. And I think that's a hugely important, particularly now that I've been involved in startups for the last decade, you have to just wake up every day thinking like, all right, today's is all going to come together today, even if yesterday was terrible. Um, so I, I, uh, my current co-founder in the business, so every time we talk in the morning, it's like today is the day. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, it's important to have that mindset. And what about problem solving? You know, obviously you went uh, on to uh, Princeton to get your degree in civil engineering, but that problem solving mentality, where does that come from? It's a good question. I mean, I ended up having like very good schooling. Uh, the Department of Defense has a schooling system that I think was just ranked the best kind of quasi public school in America. Um, so I, I was always exposed to phenomenal teachers. Um, and my own family, my parents were both kind of always doing projects where you're trying to solve things around the house and build things and fix things. And so I think it was just part of my upbringing. And then I studied engineering um, and did a lot of like hands-on building projects where you're just kind of always solving. And then I spent, after graduate school, I spent um, a decade at IDEO with where you just get dropped into a new industry with a pretty broad, um, pretty broad problem statement. And you develop confidence that you can come up with something new and understand that landscape. And I think it just comes from practice. You got to put yourself in the position and then you just have to practice and practice and practice. And you eventually build confidence that you can enter pretty much anything new. And, and you might not specifically have the answer, but you know how to find somebody who can help you get to the answer. So then in this case, you know, at IDEO, you were for like 10 years. Um, I mean, it's a wonderful place you know, to really get that exposure to innovation. So I guess, uh, what were some of the things that uh, you learned that, you know, you would, you would definitely take away with you one day? Um, I mean, IDEO was obviously very formative for me to have spent, I, would, I think I started there when I was 24 or 25 or something. So it's like my first major career experience. Um, one, this confidence in your creative abilities is huge. And I, David Kelly, the founder, has written a book just about this, and we practiced it every day. So you, after a decade doing dozens of projects, you build that confidence. Um, I think the second is um, you get really good at questioning um, and a a asking questions and learning. So the, one of the best parts about that job is that half of your time is spent just learning and then half the time is producing. And so you become an expert at learning something new and then figuring out what questions to ask. So it, you have to be curious and, and they generally hire people who are curious. And then that skill gets um, increasingly developed during, during your tenure there. And then I think the third one, which is a huge part of their business, is storytelling. Um, you're essentially, your customers are generally mid to high level executives at businesses and they're hiring you to solve some problem or come up with a new idea and you have to essentially tell their business back to them help them understand their customers and then help like help them understand some vision that you've either co you know collaboratively come up with with people on their team or come up with as your project team and so being able to craft and tell a narrative is hugely important and it's like a life skill. Everybody should be able to do it no matter what job you're in. If you're in sales or engineering, it's imperative to be able to storytell about your work. Um, and so it obviously takes many different flavors, but the idea of how do you 
create a beginning and a middle and an end and, and capture people's attention. Attention is hugely important for, for, for career progression, personal life, no matter what it is, it's just a, a hugely important thing. So at what point do you realize, hey, I think it's time, you know, for me to to do something on my own? Because, I mean, obviously, after being a decade, you know, at a place, you know, you get comfortable. So uh, what what triggered that switch? Yeah, you get too comfortable. It's a very nice place to work. So you can imagine being there a long time. Um, for me, the trigger was I had a specific interest in, like, really basic human needs and working in, um, like, really low-income settings. Uh, IDEO when I was there, did not have IDEO.org, which was a nonprofit that they had stood up to really focus on these uh, types of problems. And so there were a few of us there at the time that would just kind of carve out time when you're between projects or after work on weekends. And we did a, a project um, working on a treadle pump for uh, an NGO in Africa to help small plot farmers. And I just got like very interested in that type of work. It was Candidly, it was like very. And my background is originally hardware product design, and it was those are like really mechanical projects you're working on. And IDEO had started to shift towards more digital product design, uh, strategy work, which is also super interesting. But I, I missed some of the hardware side. And then, totally transparently, <laughs> we had done a work with a nonprofit, uh, International Development Enterprises. And I built a relationship with them and I got an email from their, the director of their Cambodia office about doing a market-based sanitation project. And they were looking that he's like, Hey, we really like working with you guys. Do you know anybody who has your background who'd be interested in coming and living here? And I had in the, that preceding month broken up with a long-term girlfriend and needed a, I needed an out. And so I took a sabbatical. I went and lived in Cambodia for six or nine months. I forget. And that, and then I, I, I just, it was interesting enough. I saw there was enough work there. I had been the IDEO for a long time. And so I went back and forth for two or three years, um, going overseas for two to six months, coming back, doing some projects at IDEO. Obviously, it's not great for a career progression within a business if you're gone two to six months. I was grateful that IDEO was flexible and gave me that time. And then eventually I just said, I, there's enough interesting work here. And I started a small consulting business called Common Made. And I did projects mostly in um, rural sanitation. So, um, you know, one to $2 a day farming households trying to improve uh, sanitation through toilets or hand washing, or uh, there was some drinking water filtration projects I did some work in small plot irrigation and a little bit of work in like in solar lighting um, across multiple countries in Southeast Asia and eventually in East Africa and West Africa. So uh, during this uh, journey now of um, you being on your own, right? And now you've started your own business, you know, this consulting gig. At what point do you come across, you know, the people that would end up becoming your co-founders at Casper? How did that, you know, come together? It was during the time when I was going back and forth um, between IDEO and being overseas. And I had done a project, that first project in Cambodia actually had ended up having great success. And so it got a lot of press within the development community. And um, Neil Parikh, who's become a great friend and is one of the co-founders at Casper, 
he was an undergraduate at Brown and he had started a nonprofit and they were looking at distributing uh, drinking water filtration filters in, um, in a slum in Mumbai. And he and his, and his team up from the nonprofit asked and, and came up and met me at IDEO Boston. They were at Brown University to get feedback on their business model and plan and the different hardware they were looking at. So we became friends in the dialogue there. And then very coincidentally, he ended up staying at Brown to go to medical school. And my wife, who I had met in Cambodia, she was there doing public health work. She had decided to go back to medical school. Um, and they sat next to each other the first day of medical school. And so they became close friends and we would hang out. And then he ended up leaving medical school early. Um, and maybe two years after he left, he called me and was asking for like feedback on this idea they were thinking about in the, in the mattress industry. And during my time at IDEO, I had worked, we had clients and I worked with the industry. So I knew a lot of the shortcomings uh, on the consumer experience side there. And so when he brought it up, I was like, yeah, it's a good idea. And then I joined uh, to help um, initially on the product design and development side uh, as we built that business. So what ended up being the business model of Casper? How were you guys making money there? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it was straight up early days, direct to consumer, you know, disrupting an old industry. There were a bunch of us, you know, from, you know, Dollar Shave Club and Harry's on razors, Warby Warby Parker on glasses. We did mattresses. I mean, there was a whole cohort that came in the early 2010s and we did digital acquisition of customers. And then we had third-party manufacturers and logistics, and we would drop ship um, mattresses. Probably the like what people thought was the innovation was like you compress the mattress in a box, so then you could ship it. I think actually the greater innovations were more on how we marketed the business, how we built the brand, the customer service, the guarantee. Uh, there were a lot of things that had come together because actually you, you could have bought a mattress in a box five years earlier than we started from a company called bedinthebox.com um and compressing mattresses had been used on the supply chain side of the industry to move units between factories and stores um and so it was in hindsight now that i'm in my new business which is far more complex it was an incredibly simple business model and we we can talk about it more but we just happened to come into the scene and like in a culturally very good time um and it we just kind of rode this wave and we're part of that early set of of direct-to-consumer businesses that just shot like a rocket um and the business took off so at what point do you guys realize hey i think we're into something here man it was almost immediately i think we did we didn't know what we had at the time we did a million dollars of sales in our first month of business um, we were, uh, I mean, the press we got was unreal, um, you know, on CNN and like, Fareed Zakaria, like we were on national linear TV, um, never mind all the streaming platforms, the people started posting YouTube videos of unboxing the mattresses and those were getting like tens and hundreds of thousands of likes. And we're like, what is going on here? Um, I think our first full year of business, we did a hundred million dollars of revenue, which now that I'm building a new business, I'm like, Oh my goodness. We didn't know how good, how good it was at the time. 
And so it was near near immediate recognition that we had like unlocked something like a, a latent need and demand from 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 homeowners and customers that just hadn't been scratched. And obviously, when you have that crazy product market fit, you also have the investors knocking like crazy because they want to also be part of it. So how how was that the journey of raising money like for you guys? Uh, in the early days, it was easy. I mean, uh, we raised, I don't remember the exact little tranches, but we raised like, a, like the seed round. Honestly, that was before we had, before we had proven product market fit, that was painful. I mean, we must've pitched 60 or 80 times to raise a $1.8 million seed. And, um, you know, we, there's like a weird coincidence where the, the Ben Lehrer who led the seed round he had previously tried to start the business we started and it didn't like there were some personnel issues and it didn't work out. So he was like already sold on the idea. He just had to be convinced that we were the right people. Um, and so that was just very fortuitous for us. Um, later rounds came together very quickly. We had, you know, great top shelf investors and some good advisors on board um, IVP and NEA from, you know, a round on. And, um, I, it comes at a, a cost. I think like that level of growth is hard to maintain. And we, in hindsight, I think we overraised for the business model we had, and that led to some probably poor decision-making in the end. And, um, but for the first couple of years, it was full on and very, very exciting. Hey guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Prior to the uh, company going public, I think it has it had raised over 300 million. I think it was like 330 or something like that. So I guess you guys ended up taking the company public. How was how was that experience like of all of a sudden you see your company trading? I mean, that, I'm sure that was kind of like strange. To be totally honest, it was like, for me personally, it was a real letdown. <laughs> um, we, uh, I thought it would be like one of the most exciting things of my life, never mind my prof professional life. Like we started on the New York Stock Exchange. 
we're up on the podium, we ring the bell, it starts trading. Um, but the context and, you know, it would have been that if we had done it two years earlier, but we were, we went public in 2020. We were the first company to go public. Um, after we worked, pulled their filing, this public market sentiments had shifted from growth, 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 growth to profitability. And we still had good growth, but we weren't profitable. And so, you know, we raised down from our last private valuation. Um, it was real time seeing like, all right, it's, it's going to trade at $30, $20. I think we went out at 12 um, and it peaked at maybe 15 um, and it was less about the money uh, because in the end of the day, you still do fine. And for the years of work, it's very good compensation, but more about like, oh, man, I th- eh. you wanted everybody to keep believing and you saw the skepticism. Um, and so it's, we had had so many years of so much support. And then when you start to get like, you know, there's always going to be like, trolls and haters and you ignore those but like people that you would look up to and really value their opinion are giving you negative feedback that that's harder to digest um the so and you kind of saw it coming um the process of going uh, through ipo also i would say is pretty tedious <laughs> working with investment bankers and creating decks and doing roadshows and all that stuff so i i I'm not sure I'd ever look forward to doing it again. I guess if you had like a runaway success and your numbers popped, it would be a very different story than what we went through. But it is super distracting for six to 12 months before it happens. Um, and it, it, I can't, I wouldn't call any part of it fun. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I hear you. Well, hey, at the at the peak of it, you know, it was 1.2 billion. So the fact that you guys had been able to build that kind of value is really remarkable and it speaks for itself. Now, it ended up being, you know, acquire the company and uh, that leads you, you know, eventually to Wyoming. So uh, tell us about, you know, that transition on how, you know, the company is now acquired and now obviously once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So tell us what you're up to with Haven. Yeah, for sure. So um, we could see that we were going to be acquired and we had begun to plan for like a management shift that we brought in a, a new a new woman, Emily, to replace Philip as CEO, and all the founders left um, when the business was acquired. Um, and then I took some time off just to like recover during uh, while I was still at Casper. We had moved from San Francisco to a small town in Wyoming. Um, my my wife works as a physician on a Native American reservation, which brought us here. Um, and I. It was like therapy. We bought a 110-year-old house, and I spent a year with like a work belt and work gloves and car hearts, and the back of the house had some settling. So I essentially tore off the back of the house and um, bought all the tools and rebuilt the back of the house. And in the process, dealt with – we wanted to upgrade and insulate the house and, and make it more comfortable. Like I love historic architecture, but old houses tend to have issues with – creaking and being drafty and so we were trying to fix all that um and i would say for about a year i was totally content i probably listened to every podcast about energy and markets and i got really into understanding crypto so i i in a 
10 hour work day by yourself, you can listen to a lot of podcasts. <laughs> so I ended up really getting interested in home electrification and energy and building materials and just like deep, went deep in it. And I would say after about a year of working, I found that when I dropped my kids off at school, I had more interest in like starting to do deeper diving, reaching out to people to try to like understand the space rather than like going to keep doing construction on my house. And so in April of 2022, I guess it would be, um, I reached out to Philip, who was my the co-founder co and the CEO of, of, of Casper and just started like bouncing ideas off him. And he had had some experiences and was thinking about the energy space as well. And through some connections, spent four or five months um, just doing discovery calls. We started with somebody who was an energy trader and then somebody who had built some gas peaker plants in Texas and um, just really tried to understand the energy markets. I was looking at the hardware side. I, I got convinced that I really wanted to work on either heat pumps or batteries because in my experience with the house, those were like the two near impossible things as a homeowner to navigate. And um, when, given my background at IDEO, particularly when you run into a consumer experience that is that terrible, there's generally an opportunity. So we just went deep into those two areas. Uh, very early on, we met Vinny, who's now the CEO of Haven Energy. And he is an energy trader by background and run a retail electric business in Texas. And, um, and so we teamed up to build this business to, to solve the exact problem I'd had, which is like helping homeowners get batteries installed into their home um, and, you know, take a step towards electrification, which is a critical part of us getting uh, to a cleaner electric grid, which is, you know, obviously critical to reducing CO2 levels and addressing climate change. And what did you guys do differently about capitalizing the business? How did you go about it this time around? Um almost the direct opposite we went back to the um we went back to ben lair and said hey we're working on this thing we obviously had built a really strong relationship with him over a decade at casper um and we introduced him to Vinny and explained the business model and it's almost embarrassing to say but we we pitched him and we pitched to giant ventures which is a kind of an esg focused fund out of london and they had a partner who was Vinny's previous boss at the retail electric business. So they knew Vinny very well. We pitched both of them and they were co-leads in our seed round. And um, that was it. And it was incredibly easy. Maybe we could have gone out and tried to do a competitive round and get a higher valuation. But we said, um, let's save that three or four months of doing that and just start building the business. Because we had this... We saw the Inflation Reduction Act, which is you know, important for our business, or like a real tailwind that was going to come through in January, and we were like, let's let's get ready so that we can capitalize on that and get get running. Because like honestly, like three or four percent dilution is not going to make a big difference. What makes a difference is if you get the business built, get in the market, and succeed, and uh, so that's where we that's where we put our efforts. Absolutely. Now, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight. And you wake up in a world where the vision of heaven and energy is fully realized. What does that world look like? Um, yeah, I would say two things. One, we firmly believe that residential 
batteries, which is maybe it's not a highly understood product, they've become ubiquitous. So just as like 100 years ago, people didn't have maybe not even 70 years ago, nobody had a dishwasher. Now everybody does. We believe that home batteries will become instrumental um, and ubiquitous. Um, and I think the consequence of that or the, like the outcome of that is um, Amer- we, we operate in America. So I'll just specifically say Americans. We've always been consumers from our utilities. So um, we buy electricity, we buy water, we buy gas, whatever it is. Um, and it's even like very inhuman. You're not even, I think you're called like a rate payer or something. I don't even think you as a consumer, never mind a customer. Um, but it's, it'll change. And so in that future vision, a homeowner is a producer and a consumer and a trader of electricity. Um, we already have producers with photo rooftop solar. Um, if you hold on to that solar, then you're, you are bottling up a valuable asset, which is electricity, and you can do with it what you want. And so you can sell it back to the grid at a premium. Um, and not that a homeowner is going to be doing this actively, like that's where we come in. We'll do that for them, but it's a real shift in, um, the position of the homeowner in that value chain. We no longer have to just take rate changes and, and be at the receiving end. And so I think there'll be a lot more control on the consumer side of the electric grid. Um, and that'll lead to a lot of benefits in terms of costs, uh, reliability, electric grid. Um, and so I think it's, it's a really fundamental shift in the relationship between utilities and consumers. And we want to be part of that. So let's talk about the uh, past now, but I want to do it with a lens of reflection. Imagine I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, maybe to that moment that you were traveling back and forth from the U.S. to Cambodia and, you know, figuring out a world where you would build something of your own. And let's say you had the opportunity of having a chat. You know, let's say you were to sit down on one of those uh, longer, you know, plane rides and sit to that younger self, to that younger Jeff. and you were able to give one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? One piece of advice. Um, I don't think it'd be anything about the business. I spent probably the first 20 plus years of my career being very, and I'll have to explain this, project-focused where like I was so absorbed with the content of what I was working on um, that I like to some degree neglected some of the greater context of how it fits into relationships and life and like your own life, whether it's your physical health or how you spend your time. And like it served me reasonably well, like professionally, but I think I've learned that like, and this sounds so like sad, but I don't mean it to be like uh, your work is one part of who you are and you have to develop the other parts, whether it's relationships or religion or your personal health or your hobbies. And so I think like uh, when you start a company, you're signing up for at least a decade long endeavor. And so it's it's not a sprint. I think a lot of the like literature and writings out there is all about, I mean, you even have the us like. Hustle con and hustle fun. It's like just hustle, hustle, hustle. And like, maybe I'm like, it's a little, I'm looking back at time, but 
um, I think you, you have to think about work as something which fits into this greater thing you're trying to achieve in life. And, um, and I've been lucky because I, I would say like, I kind of neglected it, but I still ended up okay, but it could have turned out very differently. Um, and, um, I, I, I under appreciated the need to invest in some of those other things. And I got lucky and, and I wouldn't, I would, I would recommend to anybody and to my past self to like, take that broader view as you're starting a new business or trying to do something in your career. I love that. So, uh, Jeff, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? I am not a social media person. LinkedIn's good. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, and then email um, jeff at havenenergy.com. Um, but I am not on Facebook or Instagram or any of those. But LinkedIn's my social media choice. Easy enough, Jeff. Well, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.